All right. So this is a heavy one and it's heavy for good reason. And it's a lot of relevance in light of today. So we're going to just right, hop right into it. On the morning you wake, this is a reality, a virtual reality documentary that uh, we will unfold today with our distinguished guests. And let me just introduce my two wonderful guests here who are part of this important film. So Michaela, Michaela Ternaski Holland is a multiracial Emmy, Webby, and Sheffield Doc Fest award-winning XR Metaverse storyteller. Recently named as one of the 100, 100 original voices of XR, she creates a nonfiction and socially impactful stories by using immersive and interactive technology. She focuses on the impact of the projects to move beyond the project itself. And when she isn't creating her own original projects, she consults for socially conscious companies and nonprofit organizations on creative strategy and impact production. So welcome, Michaela. And we have with us Dr. Jamaica Osorio, who uh, if you are at UH, you might know of Dr. Osorio and her work. Dr. Osorio is a Kanaka Maoli, Wahine artist, activist, and scholar storyteller born and raised in Paloa Valley to the parents of Jonathan and Mary Osorio. Dr. Osorio earned her PhD in English in Hawaiian literature in 2018 from UH Manoa, and she is currently an assistant professor of Indigenous and Native Hawaiian politics here at UH Manoa and a three-time national poetry champion, poetry mentor, and published author. If you're not aware, in 2020, her poetry and activism were subject of an award-winning film, This Is The Way We Rise, directed by Kiara Lacey, which was featured in Vogue.com and at Sundance Film Festival. And of course, in this year, she was the lead artist and co-writer for the revolutionary VR film, On the Morning You Wake, which is what we're talking about today. We're talking about not just virtual reality, we're talking about the real nuclear threat and how it is being explored in this amazing film. So welcome both of you to K2H. Thanks for having us. Stoked to be here. Well, I know, I think this is sounds, I hope it's not cliche for you, but I would like to start with where you were when this missile threat kind of hit, um, just to kind of give context to how this project informed you and where you're, how you got into it. So, yeah. Um, for sure. It's a great place to start. So, uh, I think what, January 13th, 2018 was the day of the, what we now know to be the false missile alert. Um, I was actually at at the beach in Kailua, at uh, Kailua Bay, um, rigging up my one person canoe to go paddling for practice. Um, and it was a pretty crazy day. I mean, I was out there getting ready with maybe 20, 30 other women and my coach and everyone's phones start blowing up. And my phone actually didn't ping. I didn't actually get an alert, but everyone around me got an alert saying that there was an inbound missile. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion and, a, you know, a lot of stress. And eventually about half of us decided, like, screw it, we're just going to go paddle out. And the other half, you know, some of them had children and, you know, husbands back home. And so they kind of hustled off, try to try to get connected with their family. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's where I was. That's what I was doing. I there was there was a moment after we paddled out into the water that I, you know, turned back and looked looked at the Ko'olaus and thought, you know, if, if it's coming, like this is not the worst place to be when it hits. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time out in the water that day thinking about 
you know, one, there's, there's nothing we can do when, when, when you receive that kind of notice, right. And, and the people listening, most of us are in Hawaii and we, we were there when it happened. Um, there's a sense of helplessness and hopelessness, but to me, it wasn't just helplessness. It was also this understanding that even if there was something to be done an escape, perhaps, um, that I didn't want to leave Hawaii, uh, that if Hawaii were going to be destroyed, that, you know, we were going to go down with the ship. Um, which was a powerful and terrifying, I think, thing to realize in that moment. Um, but yeah, that's where I was. So most of you took it for, for real. You, nobody questioned it. You know, I, I grew up in a family that was really always critical of the US military and their presence and occupation in Hawaii uh, for many reasons, understanding, you know, Hawaiian sovereignty, but also the fact that the US military has always placed um, a target on our backs in Hawaii, that there was a, there was always this sense of an inevitability as I was growing up, that there would be some kind of additional disaster brought on by US occupation and militarism. So, so when the alert came, I wasn't even really surprised. It wasn't like this out of body experience. And in my mind, I had intellectualized it. I'm like, well, this is the, um, this is the necessary conclusion to the world that we have created. Um, and, and, and in that moment, again, like the helplessness and, and the hopelessness of that moment was that, you know, the only thing, especially a Kanaka, right? The only thing a Hawaiian can do is get as close to the Aina as possible. Mm. Um, and we, we talk about this in the film a, a little bit, um, this, this understanding of when you survive an apocalypse, right? On the morning you wake to the end of the world, that's the, the, in, the entire title of, of the poem that, that frames the film. Um, this understanding that when you when you face the inevitability of despair, destruction, death, end of times, um, and you wake up the next morning, um, that that's when you realize that these inevitability, these things that we've decided are inevitable are not really inevitable, and that we have not only an opportunity, but a responsibility to um, engage in transformative change. Mm. Right. to prevent catastrophe again, right? right. Um, and you have to yeah, think, how, how can it not change the way you think about life and your existence and your relationship to the world, right? How can it not? Um, yeah, Michaela, did you, where were you and what's your experience with it? So I'm not Hawaiian. Okay. Sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't on the <laughs> island. Um, and in 2018, in January, I was in New York City and I remember hearing about the alert happening. Um, I don't personally have um, people I am close to who live in Hawaii, but I have friends who have come from Hawaii and like live in California or live in this in New York City. And I remember sort of when I heard about it happening, I sort of reached out to them and checked in on them to see how they were doing. Um, and at that time, I had no idea that I would be a part of a virtual reality experience in a few years into the future that covered this event as a wider discussion around the threat of nuclear weapons. But I'm uh, very grateful to be a part of this project um, and very grateful to be able to uh, collaborate with incredible folks like Dr. Osorio and everyone else who worked on the project. Yeah, um, I remember getting ready. I was just in the kitchen with my husband getting her coffee and 
it, it was for me because I didn't grow up here, but I also, um, it, it was, I, I just didn't know what to think of it. I didn't, my instinct was not to believe it. My instinct was not to um, rush off and hide because even if it was true, what are you going to do? What does that mean to like hide? Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I just can't believe it's been four years. And I almost feel like we need to do some kind of commemorative annual something that's going to keep us questioning our relationship to the world um, in these with that nuclear threat. And and with that said, with the light of Ukraine, uh, this is the first time I've actually honestly felt nuclear threat that um, comes on such a global scale. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about that all. Yeah, you know, I'm not um, I'm not a nuclear weapons expert or or an expert on even uh, war and nuclear threat. But what I what I will say is that events like the ongoing invasion um, and an occupation of Ukraine are, you know, visceral reminders of the world we live in actually every day. Um, and the fact that this this event, this tragedy is getting so much media attention is, is really important. But these kinds of invasions by the United States have been and, and other countries have been ongoing, right? The the continued occupation of Palestine, for instance, um, is, is a great example to show like the the ongoing impact of militarism and empire and colonialism in the world that we live in. And so I think the the violence and and devastation happening in Ukraine again serves as a reminder for us to pay closer attention to the fact that we are living within these systems and this violence every day. Um, and if that helps to redirect our attention to creating meaningful change in our communities, both in our like you know small intimate communities, but also you know policy change within the United States, the the world power that that they slash we are. Um, then, then great. But also, I think that we should be committed to these issues, uh, whether they're on the front page of the news or not. Um, and that's the difficult part, right? Like the 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 human attention is such a um, expensive thing to come by, right? People's attentions are co- constantly shifting. Um, and I think a, a project like this one, one of the one of the goals is to get people to like snap back into focus uh, by putting you in the center of what could have been a devastating event. And even without the fact that the missile never landed in Hawaii has had um, a devastating impact on a lot of people. I mean, I have a nephew who still every time he hears the tsunami warnings on the first of the month is traumatized. Figuring, yeah. Yeah, it like people are continually triggered. And I think what what you're reflecting on too is the the invasion of Ukraine um, and the possibility of nuclear threat and, and Russia and, and all of this, a lot of people's PTSD in Hawaii has been heightened, right? Because we're like, oh, this feels familiar. Mm. Um, yeah. So this familiarity, I'm going to kind of segue into that digital world, because like we live in a digital world now, and you kind of take on this very, very big issue, heavy issue into a space that's normally associated with like, I don't know, you know, digital video games and and kind of fun, um, fantastical kind of scenarios. But this is a real threat story. So let's talk about how this story came to be and how it came into a 
virtual world to tell the story? Sure. Um, so this project actually started uh, from an institution. Princeton University has a uh, global security uh, section within their institution that only focuses on eradicating and deweaponizing uh, nuclear weapons across the world. And they use research uh, to back up why nuclear weapons should be eradicated. And Princeton University at the time uh, was ran by two folks, uh, Alexander Glazer um, and Tamara Lillinoy Patton. Um, and Tamara is Hawaiian and she's indigenous. And so when this idea of using virtual reality as a medium came forward, uh, the Princeton University team uh, came to Games for Change, which is the uh, organization I represent. And they said, is there a way we can do something together? And Games for Change said, yes, let's look at doing something that can be transformative and let's look at using virtual reality as a medium, which Princeton had already been interested in using. And so um, Games for Change went on sort of the quote unquote hunt to find the most um, dedicated and sort of the best storytellers to tell a story about nuclear threat and nuclear weapons, because it is a very delicate topic, but also the brief was really to bring the human aspect of it, not the materials aspect of it, not the data aspect of it, but really the human aspect of it. And so they found Archer's Mark and Atlas Five, who did a collaboration previously in virtual reality known as Notes on Blindness, which is considered a very um, impactful piece about a, a man who slowly went blind over time. Um, and it was a companion to a traditional documentary once they started their conversations, it sort of took off from there because once Archer's Mark heard that uh, a few days ago, Tamara had received this alert and as sort of the quote unquote nuclear weapons expert of her family, she was received um, and her friends um, who grew up in Hawaii, she was receiving sort of a very visceral understanding of what was happening, but was not on the island to do anything about it. And people were looking to her for answers about how much time they had, where they should go. And the reality was, if this was a real nuclear weapon, especially a modern day nuclear weapon or ballistic missile, there was little to no time anyone had and there was little to know where anyone could go. And how could she tell her relatives this, you know, in potentially what could have been their last moments. And so they decided to take Tamara's story and really augment it. And I think what's so impactful about that, and I think Jamaica can speak to this more, but we did a screening during the anniversary of the event, and it obviously did bring up sort of emotions of PTSD. It did bring up these feelings within the folks that had gone through this experience, because one of the biggest things I do in documentary is I try to deconstruct the colonization and exploitation of documentary work. Like so often documentary has been made about by a specific person for a specific person, but featuring other types of people, right? And I think that's like just very backwards. And I think it's, it's, it's neck deep in colonialization, it's neck deep in imperialism. And so the idea around this project was to truly honor the collaborators, not subjects, because they're not science projects, but actual collaborators who shared and told their stories um, to Archer's Mark, to Atlas V, which also included Jamaica. And we decided like first and foremost, before this project went to Sundance, before this project went to South by, we needed to have a screening with the collaborators. And so we found that it definitely brought up 
that PTSD, it also brought up feelings and emotions of feeling seen and having their story be seen in a really authentic way. And this is a universal story. You know, whether you are an indigenous Hawaiian, whether you are a non-indigenous Hawaiian, whether you live in the US, whether you don't live in the US, everyone can kind of identify with that feeling of what would I do with 38 minutes if I only had 38 minutes left, right? So there's a lot of there to unpack, but basically all in all, that's how the project came to be. And that's where the project started heading. And um, I can speak more about that later, but I'm gonna turn off my mic. <laughs> that's a huge load to digest. In fact, I think we need to take a quick break and we'll come back and I want to unpack like how the process of both of you working together and, and, and the storytelling aspect of it, because like you said, it's a human approach, it's a human story, and yet the story is so huge. Um, it's so existential, it's so philosophical, it's so abstract in some ways, and yet it's so personal. So how do we do that? And how do we embody it in through words? So when we come back, we're going to hopefully hear how Dr. Osorio created these um, words to, to create this um, feeling. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in or you missed the first part of the amazing introduction that Michaela told about our, the, 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 how this film came to be, we are talking about the, the virtual reality uh, documentary on the morning you wake to the end of the world. And we have Dr. Osorio here with us and Michaela, who is the filmmaker of this film. All right. So as we left off, how do we tell stories in a digital space and how do what kind of words need to be created in this space and and doesn't make a difference because i think you know digital space is such a so simultaneously distance and yet connective space if you know what i mean so if we're going to talk about how to tell stories in the space dr soro do you want a little tell share a bit about your process in writing uh, along with the story about the um the missile threat absolutely um so this was my first experience, first and only experience working in um, in such a tech-centered project, right? I've never worked in VR. I'd never even heard of XR before we did this project half the time. I, I don't understand any of the acronyms we're using. I don't um, either. Can I was, explain it to the audience? <laughs> I couldn't, but Michaela, Michaela could. could you quickly just tell us <laughs> what we're talking about, what medium? Of course. Um, so I'll start with the sort of the macro sense. So really what we're talking about is the digital reality, right? So the digital reality plays very much to the physical reality. If you think about two different islands and how they're connected via a bridge or two different countries and how they're connected via a border, the digital reality and the physical reality sort of sit together in the essence that just like in the physical reality, you didn't own a car when you first were born, just like in the physical reality, you didn't own, uh, you didn't know how to get yourself to school. Um, certain people, you know, don't know that much about the digital reality and they are sort of being raised to learn more about the digital reality, right? So whether you're the person who knows everything about technology or whether you're the person who can barely answer their text messages, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you're probably a part of the fabrication of what the digital reality is. If you have an email account, if you're on a Zoom call, you're a part of this digital reality. Reality. So when we think about those connective tissues, right, when we think about those bridges, or when we think about sort of those borders or those sort of pass through ways that we can connect the physical and digital, we talk about these emerging technologies like VR equaling virtual reality. So virtual reality is a way you can access the digital reality fully immersed while still being present in your physical body. And that is using a headset, right? You're fully immersed. You can't see anything in the physical world, but you're still present in your physical body. You're 
just seeing only digital assets. And then when we talk about AR or augmented reality, this is when we can do sort of the reverse. This is when we can overlay digital assets into our physical reality. And so this is some of the ways that we're working within those bridges or within those connective tissues between the physical and the digital reality. And if you take a step back and you're wondering what is XR, XR is the extended reality. So this is sort of the umbrella we use to think about those connective tissues between digital and physical reality. XR is sort of those bridges and those gaps. It moves beyond just using your computer. It moves beyond just using your phone. It's how do we bring the physical body or the physical the physical reality into the digital reality or vice versa. So that's a little bit about what we use as acronyms and like what the industry uses. Now, oh my God. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> my last point to make about this is She's not done yet. <laughs> the term metaverse. Oh, that's the big word nowadays. Right. And so I just want to dispel the myth that the metaverse is something that is coming or the metaverse is something that is about to happen. You can think about the metaverse as just an extension of the digital reality, right? Like when when we first created our first high-rise skyscraper building, that wasn't like we created a brand new building. It just, we created something we had never created before, but it was still in the physical reality. It's the same idea. The metaverse is just a concept that we're aiming to get to, that we've gotten to versions of before. It just doesn't mean that it's never going to happen. You could technically call League of Legends or Roblox its own little metaverse. It's a place where people can connect and socialize in digital reality. And that's the end of my Michaela talk. Because I, I'm so happy Michaela's here because there's no way I could have explained any of that. Um, and I just learned so much. Yeah. And I'm still <laughs> trying to wrap my head around this because, you know, it's a generational thing too. It's like, how much are we connected digitally? And, 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 and I'm sorry I preempted your, the question to the stories and that we had to kind of explain this before we tell how the storytelling was created because we are dealing with another realm. We are dealing <laughs> with like you said, the bridging between the physical and the digital. And I wonder how that translates in terms of words. And, yeah. You know. So what, what really struck me about what Michaela just shared is how much, uh, at, you know, for Michaela as someone who actually works in, in these worlds, that this work is about connection, right? Reestablishing recognition of connection, all, all those kinds of things. To me, that's exactly what poetry and storytelling is about. It's about creating resonance, right? Um, allowing someone, I, I was just rereading Audre Lorde's Poetry is Not a Luxury this morning to prepare for my graduate seminar this afternoon. And she talks about how, um, how poetry is this space where we can say, um, what before the poem exists could not be said, or there was not language before to say, poetry allows us to say that. And in that way, it is it is both, you know, of course, a, a literary um, engagement, but it's also a world making practice because we are bringing into the world what has never been said before. And she, and she ends the piece saying, there are no there are no new ideas, just new ways to make ideas felt um, and I think about that a lot 
as, as a poet that I'm not actually creating new ideas. I'm not articulating, you know, even as a scholar, I know that there are no new ideas. Um, I'm not discovering anything that hasn't been spoken before, which, which resonates, I think, a lot with what Michaela's saying about the metaverse. We're not creating something that hasn't been done before. We are reapproaching something. We are reconnecting to something that exists. We are changing our perspective, our, um, our position to, to something in the world that's already there. Um, and to me, that's what the poem does, is allows two people who may have nothing in common, that, but for the, for the, um, the moment of the poem, for the extension of the poem, however long it is, that we are brought into the same room and we are sharing an experience, right? And if the poet is successful um, at doing this, there is connection made between the speaker and the audience. Um, and from my perspective as like an indigenous poet, there's also connection made between the speaker and the land, right? And the environment and reestablishing re connections between the audience and the environment. Um, to do this in, um, in a new, for, for me as the artist, right? In a new medium, right? Something like VR. Um, I'm, I'm actually really lucky that I, I didn't think about how this would play in this kind of project. And I, I worked, you know, working directly with Archer's Mark specifically um, and their team, they gave me a lot of leeway to, to tell a story that I thought was important and to tell it in a way that I felt comfortable telling it. Um, and something happened, this is the great thing about uh, creativity and, and kind of the creative world is there's, there's magic in those moments when you let people do what they do. Right. And nobody, nobody troubled me with the technology or like, what is this going to look like? What do we need to think about in terms of sound, like sound and visuals? They just said, go and tell the story that you want to tell. Um, and we'll help make that visual. We'll help make that visceral for our audience. Um, and so I think, you know, we were really lucky. We're all a part of a team that really wanted to put the audience in the center of such an important problem using the story of January 13th, 2018. Um, but understanding that that was actually just, as, as we would say in kind of the Hawaiian literature world, just one manna, one version of a larger, um, for lack of a better word, like meta-narrative, um, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know what the relationship is between the visual storytelling and the um, the words so like which informed which like was it I mean we he had the story but were was somebody working on the you know the visual language of the story and then and then the words came after that or were it sometimes the words inform the way the visuals were edited together mm. you, you know Michaela might know more about uh that than me so because yeah. I can only speak to to my process in writing the poem, and I think a lot of this happened concurrent concurrently. Mm -hmm. But um... yeah, so speaking to some of the technology that they used to create these stories, so volumetric video capture, you can think of it thinking <laughs> of video instead of video being captured in two D, where it's very flat. You're basically capturing the depth of people using volumetric capture, right? So it's the difference of seeing someone on a TV versus seeing someone walk into your home, right? That person has depth. So we used volumetric video capture to capture the stories of people and like what they went through that day. So instead of it being these like CG rendered humans, 
which tend to have issues with sort of that authenticity and that reality that we're trying to thread between. Um, they used volumetric video capture, which, and this is getting very technical, so feel free to let me know <laughs> if I need to calm down. But the Quest 2 headset is $300 and it's a standalone headset, which means it's not tethered to a outside engine. It's not tethered to a gaming computer. It's not tethered to any sort of um, tracking system. It's all in one headset. And when you have an all-in-one headset, very similar, sorry, very similar to like when you have like a laptop computer, your laptop computer might not be able to run, you know, the types of programs you can run on like a big like MacBook, uh, not that MacBook, sorry, a big iMac computer, right? Because there's just not enough memory and storage. So volumetric video tends to be very heavy, lots of data. And so it's very hard for that data to get processed by a VR headset that's not equipped with a powerful engine or a powerful computer. So because they chose to do volumetric video capture, they knew that they would have to optimize the visual language to be very um, transformational and a little bit abstract because they couldn't just use one-to-one -one renders of real world and real life. So the VR experience actually has a very clear visual language. It's, it's based on atomic science. So everything feels like it sort of has this nuance of like particle design. It actually, the particle design happens once the alert is given out. Once the alert gives out, it's like the whole world sort of turns into particles and now suddenly particles are leading your way. So that's a little bit about the visual language, just to give people context. And they can go to the onthemorningawake.com to see some of the screenshots in, in headset. Um, but basically, from what I understand, because I'm the impact producer, so I didn't have as much to do with the actual documentary filmmaking. But from what I understand, Jamaica provided the poem. And they were like, wow, this poem is freaking fantastic. The poem will lead as a spine for the whole experience. So the poem will open and close every single chapter. So kind of every section of the poem lends itself to the themes that you're going to explore in the three chapter mm. experience. So Jamaica opens the experience and she closes the experience with her words. And I know for a fact that those words and sort of the animated visuals were based on what the words were saying, right? And these aren't like one-to-one. -one. If she's saying on the morning you wake, you're not seeing a morning, but you're seeing right. these like gorgeous particles, like wow. kind of filter across the screen. And so I know they built it based on the nuance and the cadence of her voice so that it seemed as if she was controlling the particles with her voice or as if she was conjuring that sort of conjuring the story to come to life yeah. within the headset. So I think it definitely plays like a little chicken and egg. It was a little bit of both one-to-one -one happening. Um, but when it comes to Jamaica's performance itself, I know for a fact that that was completely, um, once the performance was done, the animation happened based on the performance. Wow. I mean, I think we have to all see it to really kind of grasp completely what we're all talking about here. But even just what you're saying is I, I feel like it's it's a poetic process to even hear a human voice of Dr. Osorio um, leading us into this very digital space because it's a very, you know, it, it does come down to the human connection as, mm -hmm. as far-fetched as, you know, that language you're talking about that I still can't regurgitate to you. It's like, um, there's still something very grounded in what we're trying to do here. And um, I, I wanted to speak more about that. But again, I think it's time for one more break. Um, let's, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Michaela and Dr. Osorio about this amazing virtual reality film. And I'm still trying to digest how it works, but um, Let's get on this digital metaverse uh, um, language and, and dig deeper into um, 
what the you know, going back to the storyline of the nuclear threat and how that is being uh, explored and examined in this film. So we'll come back with that. Welcome back. Again, I'm here with Michaela and Dr. Jamaica Osorio talking about the uh, digital reality world and this really important uh, digital reality documentary on the morning you wake to the end of the world. And again, uh, referencing the story of when the ballistic missile threat kind of hit our Hawaiian islands um, and talking about it in reaching a larger context to nuclear threat and beyond, and even just larger threats in general with militarism. Um, Dr. Osorio, I, I know a lot of your poetry and work do um, speak to this, speak to a lot of um, colonization and violences out there and land and obviously indigenous um, ways of knowing. So could we open up a little bit of and, and have you share a little bit of your work that was in this film and maybe we can unpack it a little bit? For sure. Um, so like like we said at the the top of of the our conversation, I'm a uh, assistant professor of Indigenous and Native Hawaiian politics. So most, if not all of my work is interested in um, un unpacking, understanding, analyzing, and also addressing ongoing harms and violence brought on by imperialism, co colonialism, and empire. And in Hawaii, as with elsewhere and in the Pacific, the center of that experience has um, oscillated around uh, militarism. Right. And so this this particular poem, it was written specifically for this project, um, basically after Archer's Mark, uh, they approached me to do an interview about my experience on the day. But they had also seen some of my poetry online and they asked if I wanted to contribute a poem. And yeah, this is the, this is the poem that was produced. So it's called On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World. On the morning you wake to the end of the world, take your body back to the kai to the place our kupuna taught us life began, first pole, then coral, then slime, then a whole universe fitting into a space smaller than a grain of sand, then air rising through the ocean, pulling the tides that make mountains, valleys, and rivers that cut through them. Remember our Aina, for all the ways she has fed us in the quiet darkness before the blast, dive yourself back into the depth of creation, recalling all the times your world has ended before. Call out all the names of the violence that has come while calling itself protection. All the ways we have been left to gather the shattered pieces, two island cities in the corner of the Pacific, flattened to caricature. Names rendered meaningless, carved over and over again into the binding of our textbooks. Just enough of their shape remains to call foul on our hubris, but does nothing to slow the arrogant push of progress in their toxic wake came our imperial lake. Our grand Moana Nui cut wide open. So on the morning you wake to the end of the world, chant all the names of our dead and dying. Refuse to forget Koho'olawe, Makua, Pohakuloa, Mokoli'i, and then look to the horizon. Call upon the memory of hundreds of tests carried across our oceanic backs. Bikini and Aniwatak, Kiribati and Kalama, Merlinga and Imu, Maduroa and Fangaraufa, and all the unnamed caught choking downwind. Epeli Hawofa's beautiful sea of islands vision perverted into a sea of toxic waste, the enduring gift from our American, British, and French protectorate. So on the morning you wake to the end of the world, remember we have lived this ending before. 
each bomb of history its own strike, the coming of ships, the spreading of death, the taming of industry, the carving of land crosses and cultures until all that was left is what could be packaged and sold back at a premium, all because the men with the plans called power promised us security behind the barrel of a gun, cut a fortress out of a breadbasket and called it productive. Warships, cannons, and Gatling guns pointed at the palace, then fixed into the eevee of our mountains for protection? None of it will save us from the violence that will continue to come. Bullets only beget more bullets, bombs only beget bigger bombs, and in the end, all we are left with is this waste waiting. And still, all this death is not enough to force our forgetting. Our water, our Moana, has a memory, and we are made in her image, meaning we are intimately connected and infinitely powerful. So who but ourselves to hold us accountable when none of what has been built will save us from what cannot be called back. Remember this mo'olelo, the air of change is heat. The air of life only rises from aina and kai. There is no part of you that is meant to survive when the cost is this place. Perched up as collateral damage, America's shining shield sitting in the heart of the Pacific, a warning blast calling for what's next. Know this, on the morning you wake to the end of the world, your vision will be 2020, so use it as the men with the plans called power call out from behind their screens and tell you to take cover. See beyond the violence of their contradiction, the enduring waste of their direction. Call upon your own manna to make a change. Choose to remember our aina, this kai, these kuahivi, and all they have witnessed, even more they have endured, and still they stand to protect us, follow their wisdom, come Armageddon or high water, hold them close, Pull a pule from our na'au, call out to your akua by name, and commit to live your life in their image, no matter what the sacrifice is. And maybe, just maybe, the world may not have to end again tomorrow. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yeah, we digest that beautiful poem by Dr. Osorio. Um, I wanted to maybe, if we could just talk a little bit about the theme of death as a kind of a form of cleansing or as a form of reawakening. Um, and, and as you address the kind of imperial violences, how does this, so this is, you know, in context specifically here on the islands, how does somebody outside who doesn't really understand indigenous cultures, how, how, can, how can they read this and connect with it? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think one of the things that that's really important both about, about this story and this poem is how, how central the, the specific aina, right? The land and the water and the, and the mountains are to this actual story that it is not just us as humanity that we're fearing being under attack, but it is this place that we as native people are not only connected to, but related to. Um, and I think in a place like Hawaii that has so normalized military occupation. I mean, there's there's really no other way to say it than we live in a military state. Um, every day, my daughter is woken up from her naps by 
Blackhawks circling overhead in Wahiawa, right? She's woken up in the middle of the night with guns going off in the Wahiawa training area. Um, we see we see the big like tanks driving down the freeway. Like it's everywhere a part of our normal experience in Hawaii. And a part of the work of the poem is to really call out that lie that we have to live like this, that this has been um, that this is a natural experience. This is not a natural experience. This is a, this was created um, intentionally to maintain empire. Um, and Hawaii has become this very important and strategic training ground for death and war, right? So not only is our aina, our land constantly under threat by US militarism, but we've become this place where people are trained to go off and bring death elsewhere. Right, Pohakuloa training area is one of the most important training grounds um, for the US military. And so the impact of that, not just to our own place, but to colonized and occupied people everywhere is really, really significant. So one of the works of the poem and one of the works of this story kind of follows in the footsteps of indigenous and women of color activists in Hawaii and the Pacific who have very meaningfully challenged the lie of national security and instead asked, what does genuine security look like? Because we are often told in Hawaii, the US military is here for our protection, that the US military needs almost 25% of our land on Oahu alone for um, uh, mission readiness uh, to protect national security interests. And we don't have to look that far today in 2022 to see how national security interests have threatened our lives in Hawaii, right? There's jet fuel leaking into the aquifer at Red Hill. Mm -hmm. um, there are, so our, our aquifer is under threat of being permanently damaged, right? The one thing that pretty much the whole universe is an agreement in that we need water to survive, right? That this, so anything that threatens our water threatens our security. Um, and so trying to tell this story of, of national, American national security as something that has been used to justify extraction, um, nuclear waste, independency, um, theft, and all other kinds of harms that have been brought onto our people. Like that story was, was really, really important to me to tell the, the macro story about these narratives. And then on, on the other hand, in addition to pushing back on, on the lie of national security um, and whose security that is for. Um, the, the other thing that I hope is coming out of this story is, is an understanding that, um, you know, our, our role as humans, not just as native people, as humans, is not to dominate our environment. And we have been raised in a society that has taught us in all these different avenues of our life that we have the power to dominate not just our environment, but other people, and that those two things are actually intimately connected. Um, and wanting to kind of open that up, right, and and kind of call um, call foul, basically, on that lie is 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 really important. And I think, um, you know, someone who's been lucky enough to to be a part of this project, but also watch this project and be immersed in this project. I think that's one of the really important things that's that's happening in the telling of this story is 
whether you were here in 2018 when the missile alert happened, the power of this project is you are put in the center of that story. Um, and, and like native storytellers have said for generations, um, stories are one, all we are, everything about our lives is story. Uh, but the other thing is once you've heard a story, you can't say you haven't anymore. You have now been changed and it is your responsibility to do something about it. You cannot say, I didn't know, you know. Yeah, so now yeah. what are you going to do? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I talked a long time. No, that's huge. And and that's a perfect way to segue into the idea of the social impact of this film. Michaela, did you want to talk a little bit about that and how it does connect all of us in this larger narrative of how we're connected to land and how we need to kind of resist and challenge and to uh, to just destroy the things that have been built around us that have been trying to control us? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, and I don't mean to echo and maybe regurgitate, but the reality is, is that the formation of militarism, the formation of colonialization needs tools. And some of those tools obviously are the way the system is built with policymaking and the way the system is built um, with gridlock politics of sort of the same people just kind of changing power and changing hands. But then there's the real life reality that Jamaica spoke to, which is tools of militarism are weapons, right? Like when you as a country can bring basically a loaded gun to any foreign diplomatic discussion, which in this case is a nuclear weapon because, you know, the US, Russia, the UK, these countries that own these weapons very much in a veiled threat way place those weapons on the desk when they have conversations for about foreign policy. And so imagine going into any sort of conversation you're having with someone you might not see eye to eye to, and they constantly bring a loaded gun and they place that loaded gun on the table. That's what the presence of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction, but specifically this piece talking about nuclear weapons, that's what it does. And so it does create not only a sense of unsafety and security for the folks who don't have these weapons, but also a false sense of safety and security for people who do have these weapons, right? And so a lot of what this project is working to do, it's working to raise awareness that these things still exist. Up until less than a week ago, most people didn't even realize nuclear weapons still exist, right? Most people thought they were something sort of archaic, um, something that, you know, once Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened, we would never do that again. But what's heartbreaking about this project is that there was a woman on Hawaii who survived Hiroshima, and she experienced her PTSD of Hiroshima all over again with the ballistic missile alert in Hawaii. And so to say that these are things of the past when really they are things of our recent history is crazy. And the fact that we have had these countries continue to build these weapons to a point what happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki would look very much like the difference between having a one gigabyte hard drive to a one terabyte hard drive, right? Like that level of expanding the technology and that level of expanding the ability of destruction. And one thing to remember too is it's not just the fact that these countries have these weapons, it's the fact that they produce them. It's the fact that they test them. It's the fact that they create 
systems in the earth that are already destroying and killing the earth, but also destroying and killing the people around these systems. We're not just talking about Chernobyl, right? Like we're talking about indigenous women and indigenous folks in Arizona who are affected by the runoff of like nuclear weapons testing every day. Outside of Texas, there's another site. And so the reality is these things still exist. That's the first part of this impact campaign is helping people wake up to that reality. And unfortunately, and also fortunately, what has happened in Ukraine and Russia has showcased the world that there are still people who are willing to bring a live gun to foreign, diploma, foreign diplomatic discussions and forcefully will enter into other people's spaces and forcefully take other people's livelihoods, homes, freedoms, safety, which is exactly what Jamaica has been speaking to. So the second part of our impact campaign is not just the acknowledgement of the existence, but the acknowledgement that you can get involved in changing this fact that they exist. So a great example is the fact that in um, recent years, the United Nations has signed a treaty. It's called the Treaty of Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And over 30 countries have already ratified this treaty and put it into force. So the same science and the same technology that has been used to create these weapons can also be used to eradicate these weapons, right? Countries can have ways to keep each other accountable, to de-weaponize, to slowly disband, to slowly disarm in a way that feels safe for two countries who share the same border, right? It's not this idea that having more weapons is going to make me safer and my neighbor safer, but this idea that together my neighbor and I can slowly disband nuclear weapons. It's already happened in South Africa. It's already happened in certain countries in Europe. It's already happened in other countries like Australia and the Pacific. They have signed these treaties and they are held accountable to the United Nations to slowly disarm their country with nuclear weapons. And a lot of this work has been brought by an incredible organization called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, otherwise known as ICANN. And what is incredible about ICANN is that at the forefront of ICANN's leadership are women, are young women, elderly women, queer women, all these people that have a very clear perspective of the human impact, not the material impact, but the human impact that these weapons create. And they are the ones that have put the pressure on the UN to create this treaty. So the great news is that most countries, right? Because not all of this needs to be doom and gloom. The great news is that most countries across the world have started the process of de-weaponizing these nuclear weapons and have stopped the process of creating nuclear weapons. The bad news or the not so great news is that the countries that refuse to recognize this treaty and are technically in violation of this treaty and are technically now hosting and holding and testing nuclear weapons illegally are the countries that tend to be the big war countries, the big colonialist countries, the big imperialist countries, the US, the UK, France, Russia, China, Right, And so the issue with nuclear weapons is that if one person has them, it eradicates the fact that some people have stopped having them or that some people re recognize the need to not have them. So the goal of this project is to make, whether it's small momentum or large momentum, happen in these quote unquote armed countries. So our goal is to try and make certain movements forward on the United States front. Our goal is to try to make certain movements happen on the UK front, the um, French front, the German front. 
um, and as well as the Russian front. And so that's why a lot of our work deals with impact fellows who are familiar with these territories, familiar with these politics. A lot of our impact deals with having real life screenings in these spaces for these people, for these policymakers, for the activists, because one of the biggest issues in nuclear weapons threat, and I will wrap up my point in just a moment. One of the biggest issues in the threat of nuclear weapons is that people aren't using a different tactic to create change, right? So much of the tactics have been around the doomsday scare. So much of the tactics have been around the materialistic issues around it. And what's great and what we've heard is that this project really takes it to that human level, that real life human relevant level. No more do we need to like have the, th the threat of nuclear weapons be showcased by a mushroom cloud that mm. tends to be black and white, right? Like we can really, help people understand the nuance of modern day weapons, the fact that modern day weapons are being dismantled in certain countries and allow them to understand that maybe to their own systems issues, they are not as educated in the fact that their country still has nuclear weapons, still is creating nuclear weapons because erasure of history is also a huge issue in activism. And that's one thing we're trying to do is not erase the history of what happened in Hawaii. It's not to erase the history of what has happened with the UN and the treaty that is currently in place. So the project talks about all of these aspects of what's happening. Um, and that's also what we're trying to expound into with our impact campaign. Cool. Okay. Wow. There's, there's a lot of responsibility on your part. And there's a lot of responsibility on our parts to kind of be as individuals to, to really kind of come onto this. So um, I just wanted to wrap it up by, well, first of all, how do people watch this film and have access to it? Because I didn't even congratulate you both on the being a part of the Sundance this year and South by Southwest, which is a huge. So congratulations on that. But how can we see it? So the project is going to have a public launch on the Quest 2 headset. I can't tell you the exact date because I'm under embargo, but it's happening soon. Um, it will be available for any owner of a Quest 2 headset. So the Quest 2 is Meta's headset. It's about $300 fully tetherless. Um, it will be available for free in the Quest store. So any user or owner who has one, they will have that available to them. Because we are an impact-based project, we will also have a 2D version of this experience. So that means if you don't have access to a headset, you will potentially be able to see it via documentary, traditional video streaming form. Um, that is happening. There are conversations. Again, I can't say like what exactly timing that is going to be. But what I can say, if you're a teacher, out there who's looking to have this piece in their classroom, if you're a community organizer out there, if you are a librarian, if you have access to a community space and you think this project should be there, send an email to wake at gamesforchange.org or go onto the website on themorningyouwake.com, go to the very bottom and send a form that says you're interested in seeing the piece or you're interested in having the piece there because our goal is to get this um, as widely seen as possible. So unfortunately at this moment, I can't share public release dates and I can't share public distribution, but if you have sort of an audience or if you are willing, we're willing to make a screening happen as soon as possible for you. Great, great. Thank you so much. And I just also wanted to end by connecting the space again. You know, again, it's something both digital and distant and surreal 
uh, and yet something so human and so touching and so personal. Um, and we did this beautifully by connecting poetry to a virtual space. And if you think about it, and I, you know, um, two seemingly very distant kind of elements combined together is really the essence of what we're talking about in kind of embodying this space by, you know, breaking where we're deconstructing like like, you know, the spaces that you talk about decolonizing by, by bringing together seemingly different elements and, and making it work and connecting um, through human words and, and, and digital space. I think that's just, that, that is it. That is what we're trying to do. We're breaking through. Um, and thank you for, for bringing it together through this really important and different and um, a dynamic way of, of telling the story. So again, for people who are listening, it's this, we're talking about this amazing virtual documentary on the morning you wake to the end of the world. Thank you so much to Michaela and Dr. Osorio for sharing this rich, rich process and words that are beyond description. Um, and it's going to be heartfelt for a long time to come. Um, I'm still feeding off of those words. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for having us, Crystal.